You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students. Coming up on today's show. One of the biggest lessons for me in, in really thinking about this book and my patients, we approach the end of life just as we've approached life up until then. You know, we, we die the way we live for the most part. And although certainly some people do new things, they change, um, many people do exactly what they've always been doing. That was Dr. David Cassaret, author of Last Acts, Discovering Possibility and Opportunity at the End of Life. Dr. Cassaret will discuss caring for patients facing their final days of life and the choices he has seen them make for their last acts. All that and more on today's episode of Radio Rounds, right now. Pick on the radio rounding, we're rounding, we're rounding. Welcome to Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. My name is Avash Kalra. And I'm Teresa Lee. We're glad that you all could join us today, whether you're listening live on the radio, over the web, or via our iTunes podcast sometime in the future. Radio Rounds is an entirely medical student-hosted radio show that aims to showcase the qualities of humanism and empathy in medicine. Now, Teresa and I are both medical students at the Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio, and as you heard in today's opener, we have a great episode planned for you today about palliative care and the final choices that patients make in those situations. And we're looking forward to that conversation, but very quickly before we get to that, today is a landmark episode, isn't it, Avash? Yes, that's right, Teresa. Somehow, some way, we've made it to our 75th episode of Radio Rounds today, so we're pretty excited about that. I think we'll maybe go out for some ice cream after this. What do you think? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Okay, well, we'll see. I, you know, I remember when we first started the show, we weren't sure if we'd make it to five episodes, let alone 75, so... Uh, back then, we had a staff of just three people, two hosts and a producer, and now it, it's grown a lot. So it's been a lot of fun, and our, our content and our quality has evolved as well. But uh, most of all, it's, it's really just been a privilege to share the, the stories of so many remarkable physicians, patients, uh, and other guests along the way, and, and really to challenge ourselves to keep providing some, some useful content for everyone listening. You know, this is a difficult question, but do you have any favorite episodes? Well, it's kind, of, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite episode, but I suppose since this is a landmark 75th episode, you know, I think back to the other landmark episodes that we've had. Uh, our 25th episode was uh, a great one. Shami Das, our executive producer, interviewed the editor-in-chief at that time of the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. So that was a great episode. And our 50th episode featured a, a woman named Peggy Wilmoth, who was the health policy fellow working on Capitol Hill with the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So those are, those are episodes that come to mind for, for me today. But, you know, we're, we're focused on the future. This is season six now. We have some great episodes planned coming up in the rest of the season. Uh, Patch Adams is going to be on the show later in the year. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, it's, it's an exciting time. It must feel really rewarding for you, Shami, and Lakshman to be able to reflect and just see how much you guys have grown and how much you guys have produced um, over the last few years. And you can find out how to hear those episodes on RadioRounds.org. The title of today's episode is The Ways We Live and Die. And we wanted to talk about how patients are cared for at the end of life, but also how they choose to spend those final weeks and days. 
as medical students, we see terminally ill patients when we're on the wards in our clinical rotations. And I always find those experiences to be very moving. They're very educational for me to, to see those experiences. And the patients are in many cases more independent than you might expect in those situations, and they continue to crave independence uh, really until the very end. So to explore this topic, Avash recently spoke with Dr. David Kasserite, a palliative care physician at the University of Pennsylvania and author of a book entitled Last Acts, Discovering Hope and Possibility at the End of Life. At the end of a busy day, Dr. Kasserite was seeing one last patient named Sylvester. Sylvester asked a question that gave Dr. Kasserite the inspiration for his book. Dr. Kasserette picks up the story from there. He asked me, so, Doc, what, what do I do? What do I do now? And uh, so we'd, we'd already talked about his situation, his options for treatment, which were severely limited, his chance of long-term survival, which is essentially zero. And we basically said, you know, there are no more options for treatment. And so when he asked me what he should do, I thought he was asking, well, what treatment is next? And so I, I went back in and started explaining to him again that there really weren't any options for treatment. And that's when he stopped me and said, no, and I, I, I understand all that. Um, but you're telling me I don't have any options for treatment. There's nothing else to do to prolong my life. Uh, so what do I do? How do I use the time that I have left? And uh, it was a question that I had never, I was going to say I'd never heard before. That's, that's probably not true. I'm sure patients had asked me that question before, but I'd never, never listened, never heard, never really paid attention. And so I wasn't really prepared. I didn't have a good answer for him. And uh, you know, over, over time, I started paying attention to my patients, started thinking more and, and began to realize that there are a lot of examples out there of people facing the end of life, whether that's due to health problems, illness, disease, or in other situations, plane crashes, car wrecks, and so on, um, who have to make decisions often very quickly under very bad circumstances about how to, to spend their time. And there are a lot of examples out there, I, I realized, from history, art, film, literature, there are a lot of examples out there that are really quite inspiring. I set out to write the book as an excuse, more or less, of, of learning about some of those examples and figuring out how some of those examples, some of those ideals, might be ideals that I could pass on to uh, my patients. What are some of the examples in art and literature that, that inspired you? Uh, one of the best examples for my money uh, is not something from literature, but something from real life. Um, Alex's Lemonade Stand, which now is, is pretty much nationwide, is a multi-million dollar um, foundation. But Alex Scott was very, very young, less than a year old, I think, when she was diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. And, and shortly thereafter, when she was still very, very young, just a couple of years old, she decided that she wanted to create a, a lemonade stand to raise money for pediatric cancer research. And I got a chance to talk with Jay and Liz Scott, Alex's parents, and Liz told me that they, they sort of, she didn't actually say this, but she gave me the impression that they kind of laughed at her. They, they humored her, but, you know, it's a three-year-old girl who wants to raise money for pediatric cancer research. That's kind of sweet and it's kind of cute. Um, we'll just humor her. But they had the good sense to realize that Alex was bound and determined to really raise money for pediatric cancer research. And not only did they let her have her way, but they supported her, uh, including up to the, the point at which I think Alex was probably five years old, maybe, I may be getting the dates wrong, but uh, told a reporter that she was going to raise a million dollars for, for pediatric cancer research, at which point her parents said, no, no, you, you can't do that. Um, you can't promise things like that. But she did, and that 
initial goal of eliminate and turned into a multi-million dollar foundation that does raise millions of dollars for pediatric cancer research. So examples that are inspiring, that's, that's probably pretty close to the top of my list. Yeah, I know that uh, Alex is a revered figure, especially at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I know she was treated. Tell me a little bit about the title of your book as well. Now, a lot of people, when they think of the end of life and palliative care, terminal illnesses, they'll think of a very hopeless situation. The title of your book instead emphasizes quite the opposite. It says discovering possibility and opportunity at the end of life. Could, Could you comment on that? the conventional wisdom that the end of life is is hopeless is just frankly wrong. And I think it's something that a lot of us who work in in palliative care and hospice wind up spending a lot of our time trying to combat. It's certainly true that um, many people, if not most, facing the end of life suffer a variety of psychological effects from that very real confrontation of mortality, depression, anxiety, uh, going through stages of grief and bereavement, um, all those all those feelings, all those emotions are very, very real. So I, I certainly don't mean to say that the prospect of facing death is only enlightening, is only good. Um, on the other hand, whenever any of my patients or their families or medical students, house staff, or other healthcare providers I work with say that there's no hope for a patient. I usually take that opportunity to clarify what we're talking about. There's always hope for a patient. There's always hope for something. And that hope is sort of translated into different things for, for different people. Oh, absolutely. There are almost an infinite number of, of other things that people hope for, whether that's reconciliation, with a family member, whether that's being able to go home. I took care of a patient not long ago who had lived in a nursing home for three years. All of his family lived either out of town or may lived out of the country, really had nobody to take care of him at home. All he really wanted, all he really hoped for was to be able to get out of the nursing home and, and to live at home with a family member. And uh, we got hospice involved and, and managed to, to get that done. Those things, writing letters, uh, last communications with families, setting the record straight, there's a, a huge variety out there. And it's really kind of bewildering, actually, when you think about how many ways in which people can, can use their time. And I would imagine, and I know that you write about this as well, that forgiveness can play a role in, as, as a last act as well for, for some individuals. It can. And I talk about that in the book because there certainly are, uh, and I've taken care of patients who have really made a point to reach out and and forgive those who had either wronged them or those who they perceive have wronged them. On the other hand, I'm usually careful to warn my my, uh, patients and particularly family members that although certainly some people reach out and and make that effort to, to forgive and forget, uh, there's there's no law that says that uh, nearing the end of life magically makes people more accepting, more forgiving, more peaceful. I've certainly known um, some of my patients who actually uh, forgive, I think, less, um, certainly forgive recent transgressions. I had one woman tell me, uh, well, you know, it's important to get along with people and you really need to go along to get along is the phrase she used. And I've been doing that for, she was in her 90s, been doing that for 94 years. 
Um, and now that I have this terminal diagnosis of heart failure, now that you've told me I've only got a couple months to live, you know, I'm not going to waste my time apologizing to people, and I'm certainly not going to waste any of my time putting up with stuff I don't have to put up with. Um, the next time somebody cuts in front of me in, in line or lets their dog go on my tree lawn, I'm going to tell them what I think because right now life's too short to, to waste time being nice. So it definitely works both ways. And those choices are fine for different people. And I think the, one of the biggest problems I see is family members who somehow expect that their loved ones will become more calm, more peaceful, will reach out to forgive. And I think to a large degree, this is one of the biggest lessons for me in, in really thinking about this book and my patients. We approach the end of life just as we've approached life up until then. You know, we, we die the way we live for the most part. And although certainly some people do new things, they change, um, many people do exactly what they've always been doing. Have there been any responses from patients to the end of life uh, or their last acts in particular that have surprised you? A woman I took care of, um, who I call Marie in the, the book, one of the chapters is, is written around her, who really uh, thought about her last act in terms of revenge. Or maybe or maybe not. The, the longer story is that she uh, she was gay, had been with her partner for quite some time, and that entire time they both really had been ostracized by Marie's family. As, as Marie was nearing the end of life, her partner actually had, had died about a year, I think, before, and had left Marie a, a fair estate. And as Marie was nearing the end of life, she was faced with this question of, of who to leave her substantial financial estate to, and really thought long and hard and, and asked me for my advice about whether she should leave her money to her family um, who had treated her and, and her partner so poorly. On the other hand, she didn't want to not leave that money to her family because she thought that would be vengeful and, and bad. And that's not the kind of person she wanted to be. And that's not the kind of person she, she wanted to be remembered as. So, you know, she wanted to take revenge. She wanted to teach her family a lesson, but she, she didn't really want to be the sort of person who would take revenge and, and teach her family a lesson. So I, I think that, that surprised me uh, when I first took care of her. It doesn't really surprise me now because, as I said, people um, live the way they die and vice versa. And, and um, I think all of the, or most of the, the impulses we have to say, get revenge for people who have wronged us for years, in her case, decades, don't magically disappear when we're, we're faced with a terminal diagnosis. But it surprised me at the time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kesseret, having worked with so many patients and their families, uh, which I think is probably just as much a part of palliative care as, as working with the patients themselves, but having worked with so many families faced with the end of life, has that process caused you to consider your own mortality more uh, in any way? I certainly have, actually, in, in working on this book, thought a little bit more, particularly given all the examples out there of, of people who wanted to do something and didn't, just didn't get around to it, that if there are things that really are important, now would be a good time. Do you have advice for medical students who um, might be dealing with a patient or a family for the first time in this sort of end-of-life setting? Oh, gosh. Um, it's sort of a big question. Some of the most important lessons I, I try to impart 
is that you're really not going to go too far wrong by walking into those situations as a human being. And believe me, I'm not offering you this advice for medical students. I, I take this advice and I hand it out to my attending colleagues as well. But I think often when we get in trouble in these situations is when we try to be too doctorly. I think if you offer sympathy to families, if you sit and talk, if you sit and listen, more importantly, um, if you sit and just be there with a patient, with a family, not feel compelled to always ask questions, always take out the stethoscope, always consult a clipboard. Um, But if you're there as a person, um, I think that both gives you important insights into what patients' and families' goals are, um, but is also a much more comfortable interaction. You mentioned already some of the stories and some of the last acts that you've seen patients have. Uh, We've mentioned altruism, forgiveness. Uh, You you told the story of the revenge as well. And I know that your book is is divided up into different sections. What are some of the other categories that you talk about in the book as far as last acts go? Certainly, I've taken care of patients who want to live as long as possible. That's how they choose to spend their life, prolonging it by a minute or two. Um, Celebrations. took care of a patient back when I was a resident who really, I think, made the most of the time that he had left drinking, gambling, spending a lot of money, devastated his family. Um, He made a lot of bad choices, but that sort of celebration was what he wanted. Reconnecting with family. I tell the story of a patient who was uh, an illegal immigrant to the United States, had been separated from his family for, for years and years and years. And the one thing he wanted before he died was to, to get reconnected with his, his family. Asking forgiveness, revenge, we talked about a little bit. One of my favorite examples, though, well, a couple, uh, one was a, a woman who uh, really wanted to leave a legacy, wanted to be a novelist, had always wanted to write a book, and um, told me this. She wasn't near the end of life. She had multiple sclerosis, very limited life expectancy, but was not terminally ill, whatever that means, but really wanted to write a novel. Um, that's how she wanted to be remembered and asked me, of all people, for, for my help in, in doing that. Um, And then maybe last but not least, uh, one of my favorite examples in a way um, was a a guy I took care of who didn't really do much of anything, was sort of a workaholic and professor at Ivy League Medical School. I could certainly sympathize with that, but um, he kept working, took his work home with him, continued to be on conference calls from the hospital bed in his living room, just kept working. Wasn't really denial. I mean, I think he, he knew that he was dying, understood that. But that's, that's kind of the way he wanted to be remembered as a, as a hard worker. And I remember that well, partly because it fits to some degree with the choices that I would make, but it also fits well with most of the people I work with. I think that's how we think of ourselves. That's how we'd want to be remembered. And so although Tom, as he was called in the book, raised a lot of eyebrows and made a lot of people confused, why is he, why is he still working? That was a choice that if we had been a little bit more open-minded and insightful, we probably would have recognized it ourselves. Sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing those stories. And again, for our listeners, the book is entitled Last Acts, Discovering Possibility and Opportunity at the End of Life. Dr. Cassaret, thank you so much for joining us. Again, that was Dr. David Cassaret, author of Last Acts. Really appreciate him coming on the show and sharing his perspective. And Teresa and I, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about the interview. And we're also going to bring on one of our other co-hosts, Casey McCluskey, 
a third-year medical student here at Wright State University. Casey's been on the show before, but Casey, it's great to have you in the studio. Oh, thanks for having me in. As listeners of Radio Rounds may know, you two years ago experienced, and in some degree continue to experience, uh, this jolt of news that you received. You were diagnosed with breast cancer towards the end of your first year of medical school. What was it like for you at that point as a young person to suddenly face mortality? I would say that it's a pretty interesting experience at the age of 30 to be given the news of cancer. It's the first time I really think I did encounter my own mortality mm-hmm. and think, wow, this could be it. And I appreciated very much what Dr. Cassaret said about patients who just live their life every day, um, especially in the end of their days. I remember thinking, well, am I supposed to do something really monumental or something really big now that I have this? I didn't have that urge at the time as I was being treated. And I think there is something noble in just living your everyday life out. Sure. It's not necessary to to do something extra, to do something special. Certainly there are cases of that. Dr. Kesseret talked about Alex Scott and the lemonade stand, and she was just a child when she came up with that idea and that goal. And, and that dream has really grown and been fulfilled um, in the years since she first said that she wanted to raise money. But as you're alluding to, Casey, and as Dr. Cassaret alluded to, we oftentimes approach these situations at the end of life just the way that we live. We, we die the way we live, and that's sort of a theme of Dr. Cassaret's book. And we see that, too, with patients that we work with in the hospital. Teresa, how do you feel physicians in training like us, medical students, are taught to approach these situations? As a second-year medical student, we've been taught all these different diseases and how to treat them, but we haven't necessarily been taught how to approach the terminally ill and just how to approach that situation from both a humanistic standpoint and a standpoint as a physician. You know, Dr. Kesteret spoke of memorable experiences that he's had with physicians, and even the title of his book mentions a hope and possibility in the last acts of your life. And I think that that's something we need to recognize as physicians. Um, he also mentioned questioning his own mortality and facing his own mortality as he wrote this novel. And I think as physicians, with those who are terminally ill, we have to recognize that there's hope and possibility, even with the last stages of life. I think that's a great point, Teresa. I think it's important for physicians to realize there are limitations to medicine. There are limitations to what we can treat medically. But beyond that, we can still treat our patients humanistically, and we can still treat them into their final days with what we can do. And it might not be saving their life, but it might be just giving them the dignity to live their final days out. Yeah, having completed a year of clinical rotations, I can think back to patients who I know have not survived to this point. There are patients that I took care of with heart failure who were diagnosed with brain tumors that I know likely passed away in the last year. And I think one of the most important lessons that I learned as a medical student from those experiences was that it was most effective when physicians and the medical staff sort of let the patient dictate how they wanted to approach the final days of their life, gave them some freedom, really, to choose. And I think that's what I take away from those experiences, because we can't necessarily assume that there's a right thing for each person to do at the end of life, a right choice to make. And it's important to to ask them, well, what can we do to help you through this? What would you like to do? And uh, get them involved, because like I sort of alluded to earlier, independence is something that they crave in those situations. So that that's what I think of now after hearing Dr. Cassaret's interview. We want to thank Dr. Cassaret again for joining us here on Radio Rounds. 
Absolutely. Well, what we want to do now is the AMA morning rounds. We'd like to highlight some recent headlines, some news across the country. So the NBC Nightly News recently reported that a new study on obesity in the country has some sobering statistics. In 1995, not a single state in the country had an obesity rate above 20% of the population. Now, all the states but one do. And Colorado, the only one, is barely hanging on with just 19.8% of its residents considered obese. Really, the amazing fact about this, in my opinion, is that that 19.8%, though the best mark in the country now, would have been the worst mark in the country 15 years ago. This is just something we want to highlight because it's it's getting out of control, really. And, and one of the most important lessons that I've learned as a medical student is that we should take the opportunity when we're with patients to engage in what's called anticipatory guidance. And that's just lifestyle advice for patients. Uh, they might be there for a sore throat, but that doesn't mean that you can't take that opportunity to talk to them about diet, exercise, and healthy choices that they can make. Recently, I saw a physician suggest that the BMI, or body mass index, should be part of the vital signs so that when you go to the doctor's office, they don't only take your temperature, take your heart rate, and so on, but they put your body mass index into your file. So eventually, patients can start to catch on as well and notice those numbers fluctuating. So that's just something to pay attention to. We now like to switch gears and go on to our health policy update segment for today, where co-host and lead correspondent John Corker will provide you all with an update on health policy. Reuters recently reported that the new debt deal levied in Congress, raising the United States debt ceiling and hoping, unsuccessfully, to avoid the first credit default in our nation's history, will be hitting undergraduate and graduate students where it counts. According to the legislation, the federal government will be discontinuing its subsidization of interest on student loans. This essentially means that subsidized federal Stafford loans no longer exist, and students will accrue interest on these loans while in school beginning in 2012. In addition, students will no longer be eligible for a special rebate that student borrowers have traditionally received for making their first year of payments on time. This change will significantly affect medical and other professional students because, traditionally, professional students have been permitted to take out almost three times the amount of federal subsidized Stafford loans as undergraduate students have. Unfortunately, what this all amounts to is just a bigger debt and longer payoff periods for medical students and just one more deterrent to entering medicine for the best and brightest students in America. Stay tuned to Radio Rounds throughout this season. I'll be back for more health policy updates during various episodes. And in the meantime, you can check out my column at nextgenjournal.com. Thanks very much, John. Now, be sure to join us next week on Radio Rounds when our special guest will be Dr. Michelle Au, an anesthesiologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and a very gifted writer. She's the author of a very popular blog called The Underwear Drawer and of a newly released book entitled This Won't Hurt a Bit and Other White Lies, which is really a fresh and insightful account about medical education and balancing physicianhood with a family life. So look forward to that next week on Radio Rounds. In the meantime, feel free to interact with us. You can email us, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information is on www.radiorounds.org, where you find a complete episode guide and even listen to past episodes on demand. Podcasts of all our past episodes are also available as free downloads on iTunes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds. And this week on our website, a new Writing Rounds segment was written by Pooja Lahoti, a fourth-year medical student. 
Her piece, entitled "The Importance of a Medical Team," describes her frustrations with communication problems between physicians. Check it out, and as always, feel free to submit your own opinion pieces for writing rounds by emailing us at contact at radiorounds.org. We'd now like to thank and credit those who made today's show possible. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, sponsored by the American Medical Association, providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at MedPlusAdvantage.com. Radio Rounds is proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at StudentDoctor.net. Have questions about medical school or residency? Check out SDN Answers to view frequently asked questions or ask one of your own. Available online at studentdoctor.net. And thanks to our entire production and creative team here, who works hard at the Radio Rounds World Headquarters every week to bring you brand new episodes. And of course, thanks most of all to everyone listening. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Or of the Wright State University Boonshaw School of Medicine. Join us next week, or download our next podcast, and definitely check out RadioRounds.org for more information. Hope you all have a great week, everyone. My name is Avash Kalra. I'm Casey McCluskey, and I'm Teresa Lee. And one day we'll, we'll be, be your, your doctors. doctors. Here come the radio Welcome to Radio Rounds.